0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Bob Keeling, who is here to discuss his book, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. The Beatles spent more time in Florida than anywhere else during their first US tours, and Bob tells the story of their stay. Appearing on Ed Sullivan, famous photo shoots in swimming pools, meeting Muhammad Ali. As usual, the Beatles squeezed in so much into a short space of time and through interviews with those that were there, memorabilia and letters, the book tells the full story of the Beatles' stay in the Sunshine State. Bob Keeling, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Oh, wonderful, Joe. Thanks for having me. We are here to talk about, as you say, your book, Good Day, Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. I love Beatles books that are about a particular place. As you know, there's lots of those already, and this is a a really, really excellent example of that. So a good place to start is to tell us a little bit about about you and your background and how that led into you writing the book.
1: I I was a journalist for over 30 years, and um, most of it was spent here in Florida, and I would start to bristle when people would suggest or think that, especially here in Central Florida, there was really no history that predates Walt Disney. Now, certainly, we appreciate Disney and the theme parks and, and the beaches for for what you know being such a wonderful economic driver. But but my raison d'être is about history in the Sunshine State that predates Walt Disney. Now, I'm also the youngest of six kids, and I was lucky enough when I was a little kid to inherit all of my sister's original Beatles vinyl. So, you know, I I was a fan from just a wee lad, and while everybody else is listening to the bubblegum music of of the time, I was listening to Revolver and Hard Day's Night and falling in love more than 50 years ago, I'm not ashamed to say.
0: So tell us a little bit about how... The book kind of came about. What was that? Was there a particular moment or spark that led you into starting this project?
1: Yes. Um, I'm also involved in historic preservation, and I'm proud to say that I'm a founder of four Florida heritage sites, including um, the birthplace of the Allman Brothers Band and the Jack Kerouac House in Orlando, and a little listening room that was the teen club of the country rock artist Graham Parsons. And more recently, Leonard Skinner's site, a rural area where they would go to write all of their classic songs. So, we really wanted to try to landmark the Deauville Hotel because of its just extreme significance. And I, I think to this day, even, even quite a few Beatle fans in, in Europe and here in the United States don't understand why it was so significant. So, there's also that. And my wife and I are big fans of Key West. And we had come across the little cabana where the Beatles stayed when they were blown off course, which you know, we'll talk about, I think, later in the interview. But all of that combined made me realize there's a lot of story here. And it's not just a nostalgia trip and it's not just a stretch. Yeah, the Sunshine State has a lot of interesting history when it comes to the Beatles' travels, that incredibly watershed year of 1964.
0: I'm always interested in talking to authors about about research in particular and part of the book that I found really interesting is the 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 people that you talk to uh, and we'll we'll talk about some of those more specifically as we go on but uh, how did you kind of go about finding people that that met or relatives of people that met the beatles during their time in florida
1: well joe to me really the best part of writing the book is the journey and and I'm into primary sources. I think, you know, most dyed-in-the-wool Beatles fans, people who are listening to your podcast, they're going to understand if somebody's just aggregating something off Google as opposed to going out and really tracking down these people who have these wonderful experiences, first-person accounts with the Beatles. Sometimes I needed an introduction, Sometimes, like was the case with the Life magazine photographer who took that iconic picture of them in the swimming pool, I sent him an email to his website. And within an hour or two, he's like, yeah, how can I help? So it it was kind of a mixture of both of those things. But uh, the best part of journalism, I believe, is the journey. And I was lucky enough to do more than 30 primary source interviews for this book. So much of it is about the people themselves who came in contact with the Beatles as well as the Fab Four
0: themselves. The Beatles take their first collective breath of Florida air on February the 13th in 1964 uh, as part of the famous first U.S. trip. I suppose a a good question might be, why did they go to Florida on, on that first trip? You know, you don't need me to tell you that it's a big country. What was it about Florida that meant that they had to go on that first trip? Well, I think it's just
1: Sullivan, Ed Sullivan's, you know, relationship with what he would call Miami, Miami Beach. (laughs) And I I think that was a big part of it. And I'm so glad he made the decision to do that, because I I would suggest once they got out of really what was like a prison, you you know, being held captive at, you know, in the hotel room in New York City in the snow and then going by train to D.C., all of a sudden, when they take that trip on national airlines on the 13th and they land in Florida, here's Ringo worried about will they will they be eaten by sharks and things like that. And it's, it's just so quaint. But yet it, it reminds you that these are four guys from work cloudy, you know, Liverpool who'd never seen an ocean like that. But I contend that Florida is really where the Beatles fell in love with America for the first time.
0: What was the reception that they got when they first landed in Florida?
1: Just like JFK, same thing. There were students by the thousands who jammed onto the roof and, you know, they were inside lobby there at the airport and actually at one point knocking out one of the panes of glass and the young radio man, Larry Kane, who was there to cover the story, you know him, of course, with his wonderful books about his travels with the Beatles. But he's like he, he told me I spent hours with him and he said, I really did not want to cover that story. And then as I'm standing on the tarmac waiting for the plane to come up, how unusual is that these days? But, but he said, I heard this crashing sound next to me and it was a pane of glass that had fallen to the ground from the airport. There, with all the kids jockeying for for their place, so it was bedlam, just like it was in New York City. And Larry started to realize he was onto some something much more cultural and larger than just some teenage boy band nobody had heard of.
0: One of the stars of the book is a 38 year old police sergeant, Buddy Dresner, who, who I, I think more Beatles fans should be aware of, and and your book will obviously tell them lots about Buddy Um, he was in charge of the Beatles security detail during this trip tell us a little bit about Buddy his kind of his story uh, and his his relationship with the Beatles oh well he he might as well have been right out of central casting
1: and you can just see it in your mind's eye as he's he's this well he's the sergeant with the Miami Beach Police Department and he's working the night shift so if you've ever worked the night shift you know what it's like having to try to sleep by day like a vampire And the day that he gets assigned to the Beatles security contingent, some officers banging on his door to wake him up, and he grouses out there, and he opens up the door, and he's like, "The captain wants to see you." And who tells him, "Okay, you're in charge of the Beatles security detail." And Buddy's like, "Um, "What the hell is Beatles?" He had no idea what it was, but just as the story evolves, he becomes. you know, obviously their security man, but also their big brother, their father, their advisor. You know, at one point they're out taking a cruise on Biscayne Bay and Buddy decides, OK, this is the time to sit him down and say, boys, you know, this really isn't going to last. OK, you really need to put your money away. And they're like, yeah, sure. But, you know, they, <laughs> they love the guy because because he could even with John, he, he had this way of dispelling this tough guy image with his sense of humor. And I just love that about him. And he had a, a wife and three children, and he had to kind of tell a little white lie and not let them know that he was hanging out with the Beatles at one point, even becoming roommates with George. So there's so much story there. And that's the beginning part of the book, which I've separated in innocence, influence and activism. The first part is the innocence of you know going to Miami Beach, spending time with Buddy and just having a marvelous time and, oh, appearing in front of 70 million people on the Ed Sullivan show
0: live. One of the things that I I learned from the book, and you referenced it earlier, is the picture of the Beatles in a swimming pool, which I first saw. And UK listeners might relate to this a bit. There's a book by Barry Miles. Called The Beatles' Diary, and they came out in about 98, 99, and it's a big hardback book that just tells their kind of day by day story. And on the front of that book is the picture of the Beatles in the swimming pool, and it always stayed with me because I was a you know fourteen year old in, as you say, cloudy England, and there were the Beatles in this sunny swimming pool. And of course, that picture, as we now know from the book, was was taken in Florida. The four of them bobbing away in the in the sunshine there. Tell us a little bit about the the story of that picture uh, and where it's been used since then.
1: Well, it's, it's been reported many ways as to how they ended up in that pool. And one of the things I'm most proud of with this book is I interviewed all five members of Life magazine. You know, one of the best things was interviewing the, the reporter, Gail Cameron, who was who was there and she was the one who had to get on the plane in new york and go down with the beatles oh hey brian we want you guys my editors want a picture of of the boys in a, in a swimming pool with wet hair and you know she, with her this was like a, a major major assignment but the crew on the ground there in miami their assignment editor type people were able to find the pool it was this wonderful family who were were known for entertaining celebrities. In fact, I will tell you as a tease for the book, the Beatles were not the most famous people to ever pass through their backyard on Biscayne Bay, but you'll have to read the book to figure out who was. Initially, the Beatles didn't want to do it. They had gotten there. They wanted to do Sullivan on the 16th, you know, just a few days after they had arrived. And then it was just going to be, all right, let's have a little downtime. And in fact, they decided after Sullivan, they loved it so much, they were going to stay another week. And they thought it would be a holiday. So poor Gail is having to be up there and beg the Beatles, especially John, to do the shoot, because initially it was going to be a cover story for one of the most read magazines in the United States. And as I wrote in the book for that kind of coverage, Brian Epstein would have made him uh, get into a pool of lava, let alone an unheated swimming pool. So finally, Gail tells the story of being up on the 12th floor at the Deauville and just asking john pleading and he's finally like okay love we will do it (laughs) and so so that's how it all shook out as life their prescient editors realized this was becoming a cultural phenomenon but then as many of your listeners i'm sure are aware it did not end up on the cover because of the the fill-in editor who thought it was too frivolous but it did end up in their 20th anniversary Uh, edition of the Beatles storming America so it's just a great photo and I will tell you that both John Lowengard and Gail Cameron have died since I did the interview with both of them so I really cherish the ability to do that and John he thought it was a lousy photo he you know he was like oh yeah it really didn't work out the way I wanted it to you know there was this Grace Kelly photo that I'd seen and I was really trying to do something like that and then all of a sudden one of his daughter's teenage friends said can i touch your hand your hand that's the hand that took the picture of the beatles in the pool so it's just a wonderfully intimate
0: account of what really happened right so yeah it's an excellent a fantastic photo and it's an excellent story of the or the photo now the rehearsals for the sullivan show start on saturday the 15th i dare say a few listeners like myself might not be fully aware of the kind of the the story of 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 ed sullivan uh, was it unusual for sullivan to take the show all over the country was it often in one studio well
1: you know i i was lucky enough to interview sullivan's grandson rob precht and he talked about that production crew like green berets they were so professional and they could you know go to a different city state he said they even at one point took the show to russia so to, to think about that they did that almost 60 years ago is just astonishing. But in terms of the Deauville itself, there were a lot of challenges. And in fact, I I, I argue that it was much more challenging the staging the, the first show in New York City, because this was a working beach resort. And they had these gigantic lights and all of this equipment that was actually taxing the power grid, and you had all these fans all over the place and oh yeah it's a working beach resort so it, it was a real challenge to do but but they pulled it off and uh it had 70 million viewers just like the first show did so it was officially a phenomenon after that second show was as successful as the first
0: why did they pick the the Doville? what was it about that particular hotel that was suitable
1: well, it it was one of the glamour resorts of the time. President John F. Kennedy had been there, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Yeah, you know, it was it was one of really the show places on Miami Beach. And Sullivan had a relationship with the promoter who brought them in. But I, I just, I don't think they realized all the logistics that were involved. And that's why, you know, they ended up closing the doors for the show with, with a lot of seats still empty. Just because it was so difficult to do. And of course, as we know, they kind of had microphone troubles and, and things like that. So it, it didn't come off perfectly. But to hear Buddy Dresner's story of getting them down just before they were due to go on, as a real nail nail biter, they didn't even have a green room, so they had to go up and down from their suite, 10, 10, 11 floors up, and uh, they barely made it in time.
0: Just a quick line on the performance itself. Again, most of us will be familiar. Was there a different reaction? As you say, the the viewing figures were identical. Did you get a sense from press reports or, or whatever from the time? Was there a different reaction from this one to the previous week, Sullivan?
1: Oh, I, I think one of the funniest things is you look at the establishment of the time. There were plenty of people who said, oh, this was Ed Sullivan's biggest bomb. Oh, these guys, they, they can't even sing together. I mean, there was this dismissive photo of the Beatles on the cover of Newsweek magazine, one of the most important newsy magazines of the time, where it's basically just all of their haircuts together. And it it's very dismissive. And I think it gives you the sense of what an accomplishment it was for the Beatles to, to come to America when you'd never had a, a British act come there and, and, you know, Cliff Richard in the shadows bombed. And nobody else was taken seriously, but quite frankly, no American rock and roll acts were either. So it, it gives you a sense of what an accomplishment it was, and and you know their success was not at all a foregone conclusions on a conclusion on this first visit. In fact, Sullivan himself was kind of nervous that the Beatles really aren't weren't that well known at all when he booked them. Uh, what was it in like November of '63? Of it was such a perfect storm. But the reaction was decidedly mixed. Let's put it that way.
0: Another part of the book that I I loved reading about, again, something that I knew happened, but the book added so much color to, was the meeting that's arranged with Cassius Clay, as was obviously known later on as Muhammad Ali. Tell us a little bit about how and why this meeting of these two 20th century icons occurred.
1: Well, there are still multiple stories as to who... um, claims to have said well you know i think harry benson has a different has a story and there's a certain promoter that had a story but what's really important is that the beatles did end up there right at the same time as cassius clay is is just about to explode himself and i thought it was interesting that neither claimed to know the other even though Cassius Clay came to England in 63 and won there, won a major fight. At the same time, the Beatles were hitting number one for the first time over there with Please Please Me. But regardless, again, this is the importance of the primary sources. I was able to interview Robert Lipsight who is the correspondent with the New York times who happened to be there at the same time as the Beatles were being ushered in. And he's alone with them when, when they kind of get shoved into Cassius Clay's, you know, locker room and then the door shuts and they're having to wait. And here's all the Beatles getting, you know, torqued off that they're having to wait. Oh, where is that guy? You know, where's the guy that's going to get stomped by Sonny Liston and all that. So lip is trying to make small talk. And then all of a sudden, as they're really thinking they want to get out of there, here comes the door flying open and there's this six foot three chiseled Greek god who is Muhammad Ali, well, or Cassius Clay. He kind of looks at him and smiles and says, okay, Beatles, let's go make some money. And they all go out and they have that wonderful photo session. And, you know, Lipsight says, these guys could have been like comedic actors. You know, it was just so good. But he also really had a prescient point to him this is where the 1960s in america really began with the meeting of the beatles and cassius clay and after they'd laughed and they'd done their dog and pony show clay calls him over to where he's getting his rub down and he whispers and lipsites ear, you know who are those sissies <laughs> and that's not the word he used by the way but that was the word that could get into the new york times article and and into robert Lipsight's book but it was just—it was so wonderful to hear his first-person account of what really happened.
0: Do you think they they got on, Clay and 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 the Beatles? Because the oh yeah, the, the the book tells obviously the book kind of tells the, the story in in good detail, and people will will read that. But do you think they they got a sense from each other of of, of what they were what they were?
1: I would think so, to a limited extent except that i i do know that john was not happy uh after the photo shoot was over that he'd kind of made them look ridiculous or at Mm. least in his mind you know he was the very sensitive sort you know at one point as they're having some downtime water skiing he was upset that cynthia was upstaging him a little bit and and water skiing better so john was kind of sensitive to that but i i think they did get on in the sense that here's a guy coming in of color who was his own person and was not afraid to speak his own mind. And I think that's, what's so compelling about when the Beatles were opening for American acts before they got famous when they were in England and they're very close friends with little Richard when they were open for him on his tour. And that's where they met what 15 year old Billy Preston way back when in 62 or 63. And I think that laid the groundwork for their very progressive attitude about Mm. African-Americans are not second-class citizens, and we're not going to see them be treated as such.
0: Mm, Which we will come back to. Uh, I was just thinking, just then I wonder if, because there's a picture of John and Ali in the 70s, was it Jimmy Carter's inauguration? I wonder if they they reminisced about the photo shoot when they met that day.
1: I, I don't know the answer to that, but I will say that if anybody could commiserate about, you know the trials and tribulations of being a, let's say, target. Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali lost a great deal by being a conscientious objector and not going to Vietnam. He he lost his title. He lost his way of making a living, and then of course Lenin, with you know being a target from Nixon, uh they they really went through the culture wars together and uh didn't back down one bit. There's an interesting parallel there.
0: So. As we move past that, that first Florida trip in February, they are due back in Florida in, to play in Jacksonville in September of, of 1964. But the weather and Hurricane Dora nearly have their way. Tell us a little bit about the, how, how the weather affected the, the Beatles' second Florida visit.
1: Sure. And and to sort of lay the groundwork for that, you know, we talked about Larry Kane and Larry realized what a big deal they were. So after that first visit to Miami Beach, he hears that they're going to they're going to have a concert in Jacksonville. So he sends Brian a letter and says, I would love to get an interview with the Beatles when they come back to Florida. And instead, Brian says, oh, Mr. Kane, we would love to have you accompany us on the entire North American tour which just blew him away. But his station seized on that opportunity and that access. And what they did was um, they lined up syndicated radio reports all over the country. That's how they paid for Larry Kane to go on that tour. So the book goes beyond Florida Mm. and you hear their stories in San Francisco and Las Vegas and all of that. And it was important for Larry Kane to be on the tour because he set the stage for them returning to Florida and, some of the issues they were afraid they might face in the south but in terms of the weather as they're getting closer and closer to florida well it, it's the beginning of hurricane season isn't it over here for folks who are familiar with with florida and the wonderful hurricanes we get sometimes and sure enough there is a very large system that is headed straight for jacksonville and though it may curve off it may not so after montreal and this awful experience they had up there with death threats against Ringo that didn't materialize they're looking for somewhere to go to get out of the weather and to avoid the the possible hurricane so Larry Kane says hey how about Key West because he's from South Florida he realizes even from Miami it's a three and a half hour drive down the the island chain and they might actually get some peace and quiet so that's why they stayed there so not only were they there to um have some downtime, which fortunately had been scheduled anyway. They were getting out of the weather and had a couple of momentous days stay at the Key Wester uh, resort down there in Key West prior to going to Jacksonville.
0: Just a quick line. You mentioned him there on on Larry Kane. As you say, most listeners will be familiar with, with, with who Larry is. What was it like speaking to him? What sense did you get of his experience of being with the Beatles in this time?
1: It's amazing. It, it really is amazing. And you just, you really, you know, he and John, especially, uh, were friends, even after the Beatles broke up. And the one I love is when John was in the, the Lost Weekend period, and he's promoting Walls and Bridges. And he, you know, Larry, by that time in the mid-70s, is a big shot TV anchorman in Philly. He's a great one, actually. He's an icon. And uh, he, he has John do the weather just as kind of a joke on his newscast. It was just, it was great. But I mean, the first experience they had of meeting each other was in San Francisco and Larry comes in to interview him and, and, and John just point blank says, why are you dressed like a sissy? And he <laughs> didn't use that word. Hmm. And that was a real challenge for Larry. He could have gotten upset. He could have insulted him, but that could have brought everything crashing down before it even started. And instead, Larry asked him about the U.S. buildup in Vietnam and really appealed to the Beatles' intellectual curiosity. And as he's walking away from the interview, he feels this tap on the shoulder and it's John saying, oh, sorry about the closed comment. So they appreciated him because he asked them serious questions. And, And through Larry Kane, their answers show you their developing worldview, even though they're still in their early 20s just Mm. so unbelievably young so it was an important relationship and I I'm just I am so appreciative to have had him as another of the primary sources in this book
0: so so back to the the show in in Jacksonville itself tell us tell us a little bit about the the build-up to it and what was it like for people that you spoke to that were there what was the the general sense of that show you got from people
1: it was very windblown that's for sure you know the hurricane had come through there was a lot of flooding a lot of damage the weather was still bad in fact poor 13-year-old Tommy Petty from Gainesville his mother would not let him go because the weather was too bad but uh 23,000 kids still did show up and it came off well you know, the wind was still blowing to the point Ringo was like, I need a banister put up around my drum set so I don't get blown away by this. But it really is amazing to think that a couple of days after a major hurricane came roaring through the town, uh, they still had electricity in the stadium. So the show went on and it was uh, peaceful. And the Beatles flew out that night, never to return to Florida again.
0: So uh, an interesting um postscript to the book is one of the Beatles does return to to Florida uh, and that's that's John Lennon and he undertakes a a pretty momentous moment really I think in in the whole Beatles story that happens in in Florida in in 1974. Tell us a little bit about what what happens when when John comes back.
1: Well fortunately for us in Florida the Beatles have returned for solo gigs and vacations and all kinds of things. In fact, Paul's stepson just graduated from a college not far from here uh, a few years back, and he showed up at the graduation party and actually jammed on stage with the band who played the party. But yeah, John, again, during the last weekend period with May Pang, came to Disney World on vacation, and that's where they finally got him the paperwork to officially dissolve the band. And thankfully, you had someone as intelligent as May, who was also a very accomplished photographer. John is looking at this document, and the whole Beatles experience is going through his head. And he's about to sign his last signature as a Beatle, technically, right? And he tells May, okay, get out your camera, Linda and you know fortunately she got pictures of the signature and all that it's just it was just a really nothing little room at the Polynesian Resort and it's still there and if you look on YouTube some people have tracked down the room and said yeah this is where it happened but John was also living in Palm Beach part-time when he was murdered Uh, he and Yoko had just bought a a waterfront mansion, and were rehabbing it. And I interviewed a couple of people who met them there at the time of, of just the ultimate tragedy mm. in uh, 1980. So, yeah, there lots more Beetle travels after they after they left the Jacksonville show.
0: A word, just as we, we draw to a, a conclusion, a word on the the itself, this hotel, because am I right in saying it's it's not there? as we speak, or what's the story with the, with the hotel? Well,
1: as a historic preservationist, you know, that was one of my efforts to try to help save what I think was one of the most, I don't know, three or four most historic landmarks, beetle landmarks in North America. Mm. And first of all, it was hit by a hurricane and then it was tied up in court. There had also been some sort of electrical fire there. So that was 2017. So it sat empty for year after year. And the people who owned it, you know, had all these, you know, court hearings and court cases. And we, uh, a group of Beetle enthusiasts and myself, uh, were an advocacy group. In fact, we were actually quoted in the New York Times on the fight for the hotel. But ultimately, it was decided that it was, it was too ramshackle to keep up. And even though it was a historic it was declared historic in Miami Beach. It was imploded a year ago, which in my view is just a tragedy. But mm. I guess you can't save everything, can you?
0: No, that's true. And hopefully the book will keep the, the story and the, the spirit alive, even if the hotel is not there. So uh, just a, a final thing, really. What was the experience like writing the book? Did your relationship with the Beatles change and, and grow from start to finish? Just, just If we could just end with a, a thought on that
1: absolutely i it was an absolute joy to write this book to have this material to talk to musicians like bernie ledden one of the co-founders of the eagles his brother tom who was best friends with tom petty in the garage band scene growing up in gainesville and i and i just want to say a quick word that tom passed away this week tom ledden and what a wonderful, lovely gentleman who played who, who Petty actually reformed his garage band Mud Crutch in a big part to give Tom Ledin the experience of enjoying the success and, and the camaraderie that they'd had as boys way back. So that, that was just a joy to talk to these incredibly uh, accomplished people, Red Young from the Memphis Boys, Lillian Walker from the Exciters, you know, their point of view about opening for the Beatles. It was a wonderful experience. And then what I tried to do in the very end was sort of try to draw a conclusion as to what the Beatles mean to all of us who've Mm. been so moved by their music and their experiences with them. And I was able to sort of bring it all back together by seeing Paul last year at the camping world stadium here and what a wonderful experience but but having encounter uh, having an encounter with both him and ringo also really led me to a conclusion that that i think was a great way to end the book i just know that it's not just a nostalgia book that there's a lot more to this story and and the beatles really evolve in florida which was a one heck of a pot boiler of a
0: state in 64. well Bob, it's a, it's a brilliant book, Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rock Florida. Thanks for, for, for writing it, and most of all, thanks for for joining me.
1: Absolutely, Joe, and I can't tell you what a privilege it is.